Pilot TV podcast this week, we are heading back to the classroom with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Apple's Mr. Corman, witnessing the collision of teen melodrama and psychological thriller in Cruel Summer on Amazon and reuniting with Dominic Savage's I Am series as the show returns for its second season on Channel 4, beginning with Saran Jones in I Am Victoria. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, a show that has not been watching the Olympics coverage this week, but only because the Dillon Panthers got into the playoffs and are going to state. A reference that will make absolutely no sense to anyone who hasn't watched Friday Night Lights. But let's press on regardless, because joining me here, as ever, are my two co-hosts. First up... And most likely just as tired as I am after our live Empire podcast at King's Place in London last night is a woman who has just five pilot podcasts left before she, like coach Eric Taylor, when he leaves his family behind in Dillon to go to TMU, abandons her own pod family and leaves us to binge watch SVU in our dressing gowns. It's Terry White. Hello, Terry. Are you sure it's... Oh, yeah, it's five. I just counted. It is, yeah. including this one. Including yeah, this including one. including this one. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, were you going to tell the listeners what you did last night, James, how you showed your pure <laughs> and true allegiance to this podcast? I will, indeed. I, uh, Boydie, this will be one that, uh, that you'll appreciate. I, uh, I came I, to the stage I, and... I've seen the pictures. I've seen oh, you've the seen pictures. the pictures. You've seen the pictures of me of sporting my bespoke Pilot TV podcast T-shirt that yes. I had made just for the occasion. Yes. I want one. Never underestimate the extents to which I am willing to go in order to troll Chris Hewitt. I'm surprised uh, yes. that Chris didn't order you to take it off and do the whole thing topless. <laughs> Um, <laughs> as a punishment. He might have done. I did not tell him I was going to do it, by the way. It was very much a surprise. Yeah. What was his uh, reaction? Uh, it's hard to say, to be honest. Uh, I don't think he was amused, but uh, I was. Did he call really, you a prick? That's the important thing. I mean, no, I like to save that for you, Boyd. Yeah, yeah, good. No, that was but a glorious thing, I have to say, yeah. It was. It warmed it the was. cockles of my heart. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you approved. Because, as you've just heard, also joining us is the Tim Riggins of the Pilot TV pod team, like number 33. <laughs> he's dangerous, he's unpredictable, and if you cast aspersions on King Gary, he's liable to tear your head clean off. It's bad. Boyd Hilton. How are you, Boyd? Please don't hurt me. <laughs> Very well, thanks. Yeah, I'm really well. <laughs> uh, no, I, I was, yeah, I was annoyed. I would have come to that um, bloody King's Place thing, but I went to the um, premiere of The Suicide Squad instead. I, I, that was, that was a deftly delivered humble brag, and thanks. I salute it you, was. sir. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what you two are talking about because off, off air, you both told me you thought it was a bit of a mess, that film. <laughs> you don't know where you keep this along. I thought it was great. I absolutely loved it from start to finish, so... Yeah, and yeah. Peter Capaldi was there. Uh, he gave a little kind of chat. He chatted to us beforehand before that. And I think I love him, and it reminds me of how, how underrated he was as Doctor Who. But we'll get to Doctor Who chat later. We I'm, I'm slightly worried to disagree with you, Boyd. After last after last <laughs> week, I don't want to. I don't want to unleash bad Boyd. <laughs> well, as has been discussed on this podcast, this is now the third quote-unquote incident uh we had the bells we had breeders and now we have king gary gay and i reckon this is an annual thing i think it's the my bellendery kind of does is like a drip drip cumulative effect and it builds up and up and up until boy can't... the drip drip of your bellend is another matter <laughs> that's poor choice of words poor choice of words but, uh, i think eventually it all becomes too much for boy to bear and it all comes flowing out in like a river of vitriol and abuse and now now he's been purged of it all and we've got roughly another 12 months before the next explosion 
like a volcano. What was the oh, Bells yeah. one? That was the Bells episode of Game of Thrones. Oh. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Where, I, yeah. I mean, the irony is not lost on me that Boyd did, in fact, go full Bells on me uh, during that episode. Yeah. So that was... Uh, I think was you ended up agreeing with me as well. Um, I well, think... yeah, it took me at least two years to get to agreement with you. I just didn't yeah. agree with you at the time. No, um, yeah, King Gary brought out, yeah, brought out the the. Uh, and, and Terry sent me a message on, um, I think it was on Instagram, a series of emojis that I took to to interpret because it was after I right. So I was meant to say this last week. Genuinely, I did host a King Gary event, right? For oh, the it's Tele- all becoming clear now. Yeah, for the Royal Television Society, and absolutely, I will absolutely admit that I I know those people. I, I would consider myself a friend of Big Tom Davis, the creator and star oh my of King God. Gary, an actual and, friend. Yeah, well, I mean, put it this way: if I bu- I bumped into him, I've I've hosted like I've hosted a few events with him now um, for various of his shows, including both series of King Gary, and um, I bump into him quite a lot anyway. Like if I bump him in the street, you know, in town or something, I will end up chatting to him for about half an hour. <laughs> so um, it's that that level of you know friends. So uh, I fully fully acknowledge that, but it doesn't. Doesn't besmirch the honesty of my opinion of my love for King Garrett. <laughs> I did send I, I did send Boyd some emojis when yeah. he posted a picture of him hosting an event with uh, the big KG, and I I sent him some eyes. Some yeah. if I if I could have sent him eyebrows, I'd have sent him eyebrows. Yeah. I felt the inherent wrath of Terry's eyes. Of, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unbelievable! That was a Jacques moment. To quote uh, Josiah Bartlett. Yes, Boyd, you are you are compromised. But if you do want to see my really funny Q&A with them, it is on the RTS uh, website. I think. Does it, like the show, disassemble the strata of the British class system and <laughs> yes. take us right to the heart of the problems with British culture? 100%, yeah. Excellent. I'm very pleased to hear it. Before we get on to other things, we should talk about what we've been watching this week. Obviously, Boyd's been watching King Gary, but I'm sure there have been other things as well. I have been watching the fucking Olympics, I have to say. I'm addicted to it. It is a lot of the core events, as I'm sure you know, James, go go out in the wee small hours. So between about like 1 a.m. and about 5 a.m. is when, for example, the diving gold medal that we, that we won was won at about 3 in the morning. Tom Daly and Matty Lee, the Tom Daly story is incredible on its own. So that happened at about 3, 3.30 a.m. when I watched it live because I am insane. And it was so moving and exciting. And the Tom Daly story is, and I'm sure there will be film, you know, if not a whole series made of his his life story, the, you know, this uh, gay guy who's one of the few out gay men in the world of top-level elite sports and then talking about it and talking about it in the press conference afterwards and how his, his partner in this thing was this young 21-year-old guy. The whole thing is extraordinary and incredible and moving and fantastic. And then you've got like things like there's a guy called Lutalo Mohammed who's a taekwondo expert who's been on BBC and he's become a cult phenomenon. He's this lovely, hugely sensitive kind of reassuring presence who's because in taekwondo, as I'm also sure you know, James, I'm trying to keep James attentive by saying his name yeah. every he's now and then because he's drifting along. <laughs> I can see him drifting along, like you know, as I speak. He's so uninterested. It's brilliant. All right, I'm back. But I'm back in the room. What he's is it, boy? In the room. He's back in the room. So this guy, yeah, this. This guy, um, Lutalo Mohammed, is on the, uh, a pundit on the BBC. He's, he's an ex-taekwondo 
guy, and, but he's just so brilliant at kind of reassuring us because we failed. We came second in Taekwondo and then third, and we didn't manage to get gold. And he was talking about that. The whole incident with Simone Biles, this um, legendary young American gymnast who is like by far the best gymnast in the world, and she pulled out in the middle of the competition for her own reasons to do with mental health. There was just a moment she couldn't feel. She, she felt that she might do something that was of danger to her, and she pulled out. And then you get Piers Morgan talking absolute shit about it, and everyone arguing on social media whether we should ignore Piers Morgan talking about it <laughs> or acknowledge the fact that Piers Morgan's talking shit. And then you get on BBC, you had Chris Mears, who was an ex-diver who won a gold medal in diving, explaining how he had mental health issues. He had suffered from depression after winning the gold in the Olympics a few years ago for about a year and a half. And him talking about that in relation to what happened with um, Simone Biles was so interesting. And this the empathy. And I think people, it's educating people about the pressures that these elite sports people face. So it has been an education and inspiration. And by the way, the, the track and field hasn't started yet, which is all the huge stuff. Like, you know, the 100 metres, um, all that happens at the weekend. So the Olympics for me has been incredible. But I've also sneaked more episodes of The Leftovers and it is, as I, it is so much better even than I remembered it being. And it may, I think by the time I finish watching my, this rewatch of The Leftovers, it may end up being, I think, in my top like three shows of all time. I thought, I, I thought it already was, Boyd. I think it was in my top five. I think it was in my top five, um, but I think, yeah. Okay. I think, yeah. Fair enough. I, I mean, yeah, it's a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, Terry, speaking of The Leftovers, has your watch of it progressed in any way? Nope. Um, I wanted to talk about the Olympics as well. So, oh, good. Um, so I wasn't going to mention it, right, because to, to something Boyd just alluded to, which is the um, uh, if you realise that men like Piers Morgan are gasping and gagging for both attention and relevancy because the metrics by which he measures himself and his success in this world are all about how much outrage he whips up and he genuinely enjoys the upset and owning the libs and the snowflakes. However, that is not going to stop me saying something because um, I think what we forget and... It's what Boyd said, which is about the pressure that these, you know, athletes who are on a world stage at a level we can never, as mere mortals, even begin to understand. I think there's that pressure. But I think, do you know what else we forget about Simone Bills, which is she was horrifically abused by somebody involved in gymnastics, right? And she still lives and works within that world on a daily basis. It is still her life. I cannot imagine the mental pain that she must endure to still be part of a world that she loves so much, but that in which the worst thing that could possibly happen to somebody happened to her. And I think the what the likes of Piers Morgan can't even stretch their empathy to is the very conceit that, you know, it takes a great deal of strength for her to even probably turn, even to still do gymnastics must take her an extraordinary amount of strength and courage and just sheer will because she so loves the sport, a sport that is bound up in the worst thing that ever happened to her. So two men like Piers Morgan who think they get the right, right to have an opinion on any his mental health but especially a young woman's mental health i would just like to say go fuck yourself <laughs> i mean the man is a professional penis so yeah. you know and then the other thing i've been watching just to uh, segue is 
Baptiste. So Baptiste is just fucking. I know I talked about it last week. Oh my god! I'm trying to ration the episodes because a it's a lot officially capital A capital L, um, but b they're just so fucking good. And I tell you, I don't know what is at the root of this, but I have some seriously compromised feelings about Baptiste. <laughs> Baptiste on the edge. Baptiste on the edge, man, like, totally does it for me. And I know he's, like, old enough to be my granddad, probably, but there is something very alluring about Baptiste when he goes full dark Santa. Full bad Santa Baptiste is very appealing to me, and I'm finding it very distracting when I'm watching oh, it. wait a minute. So, because there's two Baptistes. There's the one yeah. 14 months ago where he's fairly clean-shaven and kind mm-hmm. of presentable. Not that one. You're going for the really bedraggled, massive yeah. beard, like, yeah. drinking. Oh, of course, yeah. I'm brilliant. going for... Bottom of the hedge, Baptiste. <laughs> Where did you spend last night? In a bush. <laughs> cool. Do you want to come back to mine? Like, yeah. Fantastic. I am, wow. here. Yeah. I am here for Baptiste. But that just gets better by the episode. Yeah. It's but Shecky Cario, who plays Baptiste, is uh, 67 years of age. 67. So, you know, he could be my... How old? My mum is 60, I think. Okay. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so he couldn't be my granddad, but he could be my step-granddad. Well, I'm glad we've cleared that up i have not been watching baptiste but that, but i have put it on my list i put that and do i need to watch missing for the missing first no no but it it gives you co- lovely context but you do not need it but why the fuck not because it's brilliant yeah okay i will watch it i might watch missing first because you know i'm slightly obsessive like that i like to watch things in order yeah, so we know yeah. uh, i might have to do that first you'll be unsurprised to hear boy that i did not watch any of the olympics at all not one thing not one frame i don't even know what's happening but you know I don't mind admitting that to you, boy, because you already think I'm a massive bell so it's fine. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, this one, one thing I do genuinely regret, and that's when the Olympics were in London, I didn't go and see anything, anything. Almost on principle, just to be contrary, and then I kind of regretted it, because I'm like, that's your only chance yeah. to ever do it, and you didn't yeah. do it, and you're a bit of a dick. So I should have at least gone to see the BMXs, because I think that would have been fun. Oh, the skateboarding. I mean, the skateboarding. I mm. love the skateboarding. See, that, that, that's more my speed. Like, you keep your hurdles and your shot put, but... The skateboarding goal that they've had so far, was the freestyle was won by a 14-year-old girl. Was that? Fantastic, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, fine. You, I'm, skateboarding, I could watch. I could watch that. But no, but not watching any Olympic stuff, because I have only been watching Friday Night Lights. I have finished season one now of Friday Night Lights, and let me tell you, it's a fucking spectacular season of television, that is almost paralleled by how spectacularly awful season two is. So this is, and Terry, if you ever watched this, the pivot from season one of this show to season two is extraordinary. They take the worst plot thread, the worst, most unnecessary plot thread from season one, and they take it in the first episode of season two, and they fucking run with it. And there is, and I wrote too many spoilers, but there is genuine, and so you know what this is, Terry. It's obviously a high school, it's a drama, it's about football, it's high school melodrama, blah, 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 blah. It's very well shot, very well acted, all that sort of stuff, but it's a high school show. They introduce a murder subplot into the first episode of season two. I mean, there's upping the stakes and there's upping the stakes. So basically, they turn all the characters into bellends, they split up the main family like Judy's being a twat as well and then there is this murder subplot and it just 
it, like a runaway bull, it just goes berserk in this season. And you're just like, I don't know what is happening. And I remember watching this like a car crash in slow motion the first time I saw this show and just not comprehending what happened. And the, the best thing that possibly happened was the writer's strike meant the season got cut short and they just drew a line under it, went into season three and pretended it never happened and no one spoke of it again. <laughs> You know, this, you know, this makes me think of, I, I put out a tweet for questions for this podcast and somebody, Mike B. Hoy, says, it's James, the only TV critic who spends most of his time watching old telly instead of new. I think he just answered that question for you, Mike B. Hoy. Hey, look. Hey, look, Mike, if that is indeed your real name, we all deal with, you know, the woes of the pandemic in our own individual ways. And mine is to spend time with familiar friends. And in lieu of actual human flesh and blood people, I choose the students of Dylan High School in this particular instance. So, yeah, it's great. So that's brilliant. Ted Lasso obviously is still going on. They haven't given me any more episodes of that yet, which is a shame because I very much want to watch some more Ted. I need some more Ted in my life. I'm also particularly, I'm glued, I'm glued essentially to the Apple screener site and I'm glued to it for two reasons. One, because we've had eight out of the 12 episodes of Ted Lasso and I need the rest of them. And two, because episodes of C will appear there at some point soon. I know they will and I need them in my eyes, no pun intended. Yes, episodes of C, must have those. That is the one thing I think that could turn me away from Friday Night Lights. Not the morning show. The morning show, I mean, when that happens, that's, that's, I mean, that's yes, exciting. That will also be exciting, but that I don't think we'll get screened as that for a while because that's not just September, is it? So. so is that everything we've been watching? I'm assuming it is. Terry is basically at this point reading emails, so I shall <laughs> shift us seamlessly from that to this week's listener question. Now... This week's listener question was going to be about TV shows that change their theme tunes and the reasons why, which I rather like because I found it quite fascinating and I unearthed some really, really brilliant, just, just mind-blowing facts about this, some spectacularly insightful commentary. It was going to be great. But you two fuckers <laughs> torpedoed it at the 11th hour and said the question was, and I quote, shit. So we will not be discussing... Hey, majesty. all we'd end up doing is listing shows that change their theme tunes and speculating as to why. And well, like, you know, you know, this these questions are meant to be places for us to have discussion and it's a discursive, you know, place for us to really get our teeth into things. Or we sit and listen to you read Lissa and Mansplain. <laughs> so you don't want to hear that Deep Space Nine's orchestral theme tune went up-tempo in season four, which corresponded with Avery Brooks' both shaving his head and growing a beard and the arrival of Michael Dorn as Worf which kicked that show up a notch from a slightly average Star Trek spinoff to the leader of the pack and made it spectacular and focused on the Dominion War. No, I mean... this reminds me of when in, in Alan Partridge in, in season two of This Time with Alan Partridge <laughs> Alan Partridge goes on about how they put some wild wild guitar in the theme tune to this time and he gets furious about it and everyone's just like what the fuck are you talking about you cretin? So yeah that's, that's what it reminds me of Well anyway because they didn't want my excellent excellent question which I had prepared a proper answer for we are instead going to talk about Dr Bloody Who So <clears throat> in recognition, obviously, other news that the Doctor is no longer in the house. Uh, we're going to talk about who might replace Jodie Whittaker inside the TARDIS as the new star of Doctor Who. Please note that I said the new star of Doctor Who and not the new Doctor Who, as that would have been a rookie error. Look how proud you are with you. Have I you am. ever looked more smug than you do right now? <laughs> I am yeah, quite exactly. proud of that, yes, yes. 
So I think this is actually not who will replace. I think this is who we would like yes. to replace, which I think yes. is a very different thing. And we all know there's been very there's been rumors about Ollie Alexander, for example, but this is very much who we would like. I'm most intrigued to hear who James would like to be the next doctor. Adrian Dunbar. Mm. Mm, that's not bad, actually. Ted yeah. Hastings as the Doctor. I would watch every single fucking episode. And let's be uh, honest, that would take quite the a lot. Said the lagging at the bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what that was or what part of the world it came from, but sure. Um, yes. Martin Brennan could be the new Doctor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> who the hell? Who? Doctor oh. Who? Who is the hell is that? Who the hell is in my TARDIS? Oh, my God. Uh, no, Ted Hastings as Doctor Who. Jesus, Mary, Joseph and the Wee Daleks. I could 100% be there for that. He didn't float up the time stream on a bubble. Oh, God. Look at... Carry on reading your puns. Go on. Off you I go. I didn't read that. That's off the cuff, <laughs> Terry. This is extemporised. Um, I, I would like to say... Samantha Morton as uh, the Doctor. Yeah. Slightly slightly darker <laughs> Doctor, maybe. Um, on your line of duty tip, James Dyer, Vicky McClure... She was mm. on my list. I think would be an amazing Doctor. Mm. And actually, um, she's in a show we're reviewing this week, but not actually for that. I, it got me thinking it because of Black Panther, Letitia Wright would be an amazing Doctor. Yes. She's got the science vibes, she's got the brains vibes... She's got the spirit vibes. I thought you might have said Michaela Cole. Hmm. That's also a good show. I think she'd be a good doctor. So Michaela Cole, right, this, this is just to... to, to um, Michaela Cole is currently in the betting. Oh, is she? And if, yeah. So the, I'll, I'll read you, the current betting is... because So basically this is all happening today. This was revealed today, as we recorded on Thursday afternoon, that Jodie Whittaker was leaving. Um, and we, so it's kind of news, listen to question, crossover. Um, and Chris Jimmel's leaving as well, showrunner. So they've put out there all the all the bookies, right? So the book, so I got sent a, a list. Michaela Cole, favourite. I mean, first of all, I'd love it. We'd all love it. There's no way Michaela Cole, who is creating her own <laughs> legendary award-winning series, is going to devote what two at least two years of her life to starring in fucking Doctor Who. Much as I love it. It's so unlikely. I have no idea why these people think that she's even even going to be in the running. It's insane. Ollie Alexander is second favourite. That I can see. I mean, that mm. I can see. Mm. I mean, you know, he, he definitely loved the acting that he did in It's a Sin. He loved that experience. And it would be, you know... Because let's face it, the historic factor of casting a woman in Doctor Who, they now have to address... To some extent, it will, you know, there's the identity politics element of this. And having an out gay man, um, an out queer man playing Doctor Who would be, would be mm. legendary. And he's proved himself to be a brilliant actor. So I think that would be an, an excellent move. Then you've got Kelly McDonald is in the betting, is in the running, apparently. Oh, yeah. wasn't, was wasn't she in the running before? I think she was, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure last yeah. time her name was, was mentioned. Yeah. Vicky McClure is in there. As well, uh, Richard Iodi keeps popping up. Richard Iodi mm. keeps popping up. I think mainly because his persona is so nerdy and geeky that people go, "Well, it, it would be like a seamless fit into like the traditional." He does Doctor feel who. like a man who carries sonic screwdrivers around with him. Exactly, and Michael Sheen is is in there as well. I love Michael Sheen. Mm. I mean, Michael Sheen does like comedy panel shows. Maybe he would do it. I don't know. I I had quite a meta one as well, which is. Get ready. She won't want to do it because why would she? Because she's making her own films and amazing award-winning global television. But Billy Piper <laughs> as the Doctor. Amazing. What? Yeah. Isn't that crossing Rome. the streams slightly? Well, massively crossing the streams, but yeah. 
doctor, the Rose, Rose, I mean, you know, you had Dr. Donna anyway, but I'm not talking about that kind of her becoming the doctor. I'm talking about her actually being the doctor. That would be that would be mind blowing, genuinely. Yeah, mind-blowing, I mean, yeah. I'm, that's yeah. making my head hurt. Uh, bear with me, Sophia De Martino, because she's basically the Doctor in that episode of Loki anyway. I was just going to so, say, I love the way you say that. Like, because I'm just going to reveal, because you probably couldn't guess <laughs> the fact that she's basically just done that thing in the massive Disney Plus show. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. You're, pro- you're probably going to need this one explaining, guys. It's a bit of a mind twister. <laughs> All right, all right. I've got a couple of others. Saran Jones, who's going to be coming out later on the show, I think she'd make a very good doctor. Mm. Gentleman Jack channeling that kind of persona. Also, how much would you pay to see Nicola Walker as the doctor? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. I'm sensing Terry's on board with this idea. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. A little bit like Billy Piper is. Russell Tovey has played a role in Doctor Who. He was in the episode um, with Kylie Minogue, um, which yeah. is a Christmas episode. And he kind of, I think I think he was discussed as being the Doctor at one point. Um, I know Russell T. Davis loves the idea of him being the Doctor. Again, he's very busy <laughs> with his art and stuff. I'd love it. I mean, I had to have a friend who is the Doctor would be a dream come true for me, obviously. There's also the question I wanted to mention of Joe Martin, right? Joe Martin was unveiled as an alternate Doctor in the last yeah. series. And she yeah. was brilliant. I absolutely loved her, even in, in the minimal, you know, amount we saw of her as this kind of alternate, do- mysterious alternate Doctor. And I think they have to address that. I don't know how they're going to address it in the next series. And, you know, yeah, it's fascinating, really. I don't, because they're not going to... That's not going to be the answer, is it? Like, I don't they're think not so. Gonna... I assume not. No. no, I assume not, yeah. Excellent. Are we out of ideas? Oh, no, we could go on about this forever. But, yeah. Let's not, though. Um, (laughs) If you would like your question completely ignored and torpedoed by Terry and Boyd while they come up with something stupid to talk about instead, then, by all means, do send your ideas to Pod via DM on Twitter. Shall we move on, then, to this week's news? Unless you two object to that as well and would like to do something else, then, you know, feel free. Don't be a prick, James. <laughs> You've changed the structure and format of this podcast loads of times without telling us, so I mean, it's about time we did. Fair enough. Well, I think we can all say that the most exciting thing broke maybe half an hour before we started recording this podcast, and that was the new trailer for C. Yes! Bubba Voss, Edo Voss, all of them in the house. The Queen has had a complete change of heart on what is and isn't a witch. Everything's going on. There's wars, there's violence. It looks amazing. It's already number one on our show of the year list. Uh, I'm just reserving the spot. I'm keeping it warm for it <laughs> now. Uh, yes, C is nearly back with us. I'm pretty psyched. Is that mean, does that mean the Queen's still wanking? Is that still happening? That- she could be, but having said yeah. that, given that her religion seems to have taken a bit of a turn, she may not need to, you know, wank pray as much this season as she did in the first one. So, but we'll find out. Wank pray yeah, love. Wank pray yeah. love. <laughs> 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 it has a slightly weird ruby, a sort of mournful cover of Ruby Tuesday in the trailer as well, oh. in that way that they do, where they just take a song and they give you a really sort of slow downbeat. Oh, that's very Stephen Knight, that is. Yeah, he loves yeah. doing that. He loves doing that, yeah. So, so that's in there. Uh, what else do we hear? We also got to have a date, I think, now for Hawkeye as well. November 24th, Hawkeye will be with us. So that's pretty exciting too, with or without Vincent D'Onofrio, which, uh, which is a new story we talked about on the Empire podcast this week, but he may or may not be reprising his role as the kingpin. There was some, uh, shall we say, confusion, some obfuscation on social media about whether or not that rumour is true, but he liked a tweet that says it was, and I think we can all agree that that is incontrovertible. Uh, but I'd, li- I'd like to see him back in that role. I think he was fantastic. 
and it wouldn't be crossing the streams too much. It'd be fine. There was a trailer for American Horror Story today as well. Aliens. Aliens. Yeah, it looked like aliens. It does look like aliens. And mermaids. That's a turn, isn't it? Yeah, well, so it's a double, it's called Double Feature. This this series of American Horror Stories, I mean, they're all interesting, but this one is, is a different, and it's called Double Feature, and there's two stories, two different stories, and a split. So half the season is called Red Tide, and the other half is called Death Valley, and I think the aliens are going to be one half, and the scary mermaid's going to be in the other half. But it did look, it looked visually stunning from the trailer. I did it now. Oh, yeah. Yes, I have not seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. And arriving, it's, they gave it, a, they confirmed its air date in America of the 25th of August, but it's going to be on Star on Disney Plus here because Fox doesn't exist anymore, so it should arrive pretty much that day here, but I don't think that's been confirmed. Should we talk about the, well, I suppose it's good news now about Bob Odenkirk, who obviously yes. indeed. collapsed indeed. on the set of Better Call Saul, I think Tuesday night we were hearing about it, and then it was kind of radio silence for 24 hours. When we recorded mm. the Empire podcast last night, there still hadn't been any word. And then his son tweeted, say, just saying he's going to be okay. And then I think they put a statement out saying he's stable, but it was a heart-related incident on set, and that which has led people, I think, to speculate he actually had a heart attack. Um, I think the early reports said that, but I mean, mm. they could have been misreported, to be honest. But mm. yes, they did say heart attack. But either way, he is on the mend, and that is very, very good news indeed. Uh, other news that... Terry, you must have found very good news. Have you seen they are making a Vince McMahon TV series? Have you seen this? Hang on, this has been out for a while, hasn't it? Okay. This is the first I've heard of it. Well, tell me more about it, Terry, since you seem to be the expert. There's going to be a TV show about Vince McMahon. The thing is, if you follow WWF as it once WWE, was... WWE, Terry. WWE. God, you're so 1980s. Then you will know that Vince McMahon has had a fairly volatile and interesting and roller coaster of a life as has his children that is an empire and what is compelling about it or or be interesting to see what they do is how you because that entire world of Vince McMahon is part fantasy part kind of scripted almost and that's what makes WWE Universe so compelling they're like absolutely fucking impeccable storytellers how you kind of dig into that for the TV show and how you how do you disseminate between what is true and what is fantasy or does that even matter or is mm. it just about telling like a fairly dramatic story I don't know the answers to it but I am here for it because the man is nuts um, so it is from which just to give some actual facts so they're saying it's a scripted series from Blumhouse of all places which you know also makes it much more exciting and I think its current title is the United States of America versus Vince McMahon. And they've said, we have a dramatic, riveting saga, one that's crazier than fiction. Presumably that's because some of it is actually fiction. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? Because he's been like a villain on and off screen for quite a long time. Whereas I, when I was into wrestling way back in the actual 80s, that was before he started getting all beefy yeah. Like as boss man Vince, as back when he was just commentator, like good guy commentator, him and Gorilla Monsoon commenting uh, on the matches. Well, and this TV show is focusing on the kind of steroids controversy because he was indicted by the government at some point. But, I mean, he could have several TV shows based on various incidents in his life. And, you know, Stephanie McMahon, his daughter, who now essentially runs WWE, she's, like, got her own 
fascinating backstory. So, you know, this will probably be the first of many. But I, f- I find it interesting that they're working with Blumhouse on it because that yeah. gives it a certain, obviously, air of quality, I want to say. Is there, is there is the WWE on a downslide at the moment? I was reading an interesting article about this, about how, like, Vince... Uh, Vince Old Vince was upset when The Rock headed off to go and do... I mean, he still does stuff, so I don't know how upset he can be, because doesn't The Rock still wrestle sometimes? He does occasional... The Rock does occasional guest appearances at huge, big... The yeah. huge, big events. But that's like a rare, you know, literally, like, star cameo moment. Yeah, yeah and, but and, I, I mean, in terms of their success, James, if, if, as a bit of context... Most recently, WWE sold the exclusive streaming rights to their vast content library to Peacock in a deal worth $1 billion. All right, so they're not doing terribly. <laughs> so I think they were right. I think yeah. Vince, well, Vince McMahon and his, his one billion pile of, of American dollars is probably doing A-OK. The thing I read was talking about that in the sort of post-rock leaving for Hollywood thing, they put all their eggs in the basket of John Cena, essentially, and he became like their meal ticket for the whole thing. And apparently most of the stars that come up, whether it be The Rock, whether it be Cena, they all start as heels. Like the, the best faces, the faces you love the most, are heels turned face. Uh, and the problem was they didn't build up any of the heels really that fought Cena because Cena would beat everyone. And so now that Cena's essentially moved to movies as well, there's no one who fills that gap because everybody hates Roman Reigns. That's my understanding of this. But, you know, but you've got to think about their business model, right? Their business model is, is yeah, the wrestling and the streaming rights and all of that, the pay-per-views and, and the actual kind of tickets they sell and everything. But actually... It's all about the merch and the merch and all of that and all the spin-offs are built around the personality and the characters. So to your point, what fucking really disrupts that business model is if they spend years building somebody up, they rinse that person's image and name and IP Mm. and the fans buy literally everything produced with their name on it or their face on it. And then that person goes off and uses the profile they've built arguably within WWE to develop a massive career, which then makes them a million, trillion billionaire. Then I can see why maybe, you know, they're thinking if we make, there's almost a a point where they make people too famous because then they don't need the WWE anymore. Do you know what I mean? And I think Mm. the WWE is probably most comfortable when they have almost like, famous within the fandom and within the wrestling community, but not maybe kind of globally famous with your average person in the street. So is it more like central? It does seem, and again, I have not watched wrestling for ages, so I'm coming from kind of a place of ignorance here, but it seems like it is more centralised around a few key characters now in a way that it didn't feel like, certainly to me in the 80s, that it was. It felt like it was a broad, sort of wild, weird and wonderful collection of crazy characters because that was back when wrestlers didn't wrestle under their own names ever. They all had stupid names. You know, no one, I but no one, no one for me will ever replace the Ultimate Warrior, for example, well, in my heart. But that's the thing, but they still had the standout. So, but the difference was, to your point, Ultimate Warrior was a character, right? So, without yeah. the hair and the armbands and the and, face the, and I'm doing the shit, I'm <laughs> yeah, doing, doing the, rope the shaking shake, of the ropes, right? yeah, yeah. Without that, he could walk down the street and you wouldn't recognize him and you wouldn't give a fuck about him. You only cared about him as Ultimate Warrior. He could, for example, become a hard right wing motivational speaker yeah, and no one realized he was the Ultimate warrior <laughs> but randy savage randy savage was the same they built the macho char- king they built characters and personas what's because what's happened now is it's john cena it's it's the bella mm. twins it's nikki bella it's do you know and and so they're people who kind of exist in their own right which i don't think the wwe like but i i agree with you when we were growing up even hulk hogan 
he was a character, the voice, yeah. the mannerisms, the way yeah. he behaved. And then if you ever saw them out of character or off camera, which they tried not to do barely ever because it ruined the mystique, they're just like normal guys, right? Whereas oh, I've now, seen more of Hulk Hogan out of character mm-hmm. than I ever wanted to. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we've got like people who are famous for being themselves. And I think that kind of, if, if, if wrestling is really a performance in theatre, it should be all based around the characters. But I think that they've kind of moved away from that. Mm. And, and, and as you say, they've kind of almost set themselves up to allow these people to more easily transition to movie and other entertainment crews. Mm. That never worked for Hulk Hogan. God knows he tried. Uh, nobody needs to watch Suburban Commando or Mr. Nanny. But enough about this. This isn't a WWE podcast, although we should absolutely start one. <laughs> Terry, me and you, we'll make it happen. Yeah. What else have we got? Dexter New Blood dropped a trailer, which I have to be honest, I was more excited about than I thought when I finally seen it. It's going to be coming to Showtime in the US on Sunday, November the 7th, hopefully around the same time here, though I don't know at this stage. But uh, yeah, it's nice to see Dexter Morgan back on screen. Were of you a big fan of the show? Did you watch it? Did you like it? Yeah, it was excellent, yeah. Really liked it, yeah. Famously terrible last series and ending, but yeah, um, yeah, it was it was great. At its height, it was fantastic. It was. I mean, a lot of people dislike well, quite a lot of the latter series. I liked them. I think all the way up to the Julia Stiles season. I think that might be the last one I liked, and after that, it went the the one with was it Colin Hanks. And Edward James Olmos, that one, I wasn't a fan of that one in the last season. They made some very odd choices plot-wise. We won't go into them because we don't want to spoil it for anyone who is now watching Dexter in the run-up to its return. But they do make some very, very stupid choices. Still, good show. Well worth watching. <laughs> Terry, you seem poised to say something. Well, I was just going to say, did we see the Peacock news yes, yes, finally? Yes, that's proper, that's proper yeah. news. <laughs> that's properly yeah. exciting. So Peacock... Yeah. They've announced that Peacock is coming to Sky. So you'll get it free. I think something like 20 million people are going to get it for free with Sky subscriptions and with Now subscriptions. I don't know if beyond that, if you're not a Sky customer, whether you can just subscribe to that. I presume not, because I presume part of the idea from Sky is that it motivates you. It's an additional reason to subscribe to Sky. So, Boydy, I was going to ask you, what does that mean we'll actually be able to see? Because I was trying to work out what Peacock currently has in the States, but we don't have here. They have something like, I think they have something like 7,000 hours of of like vintage, you know, of library content, including the affair. I I noticed one of your favourites, Ray Donovan, Two and a Half Men, blah blah blah. But in terms of like original programming, it, what's interesting is up until this announcement, the original programming had kind of been shared out onto whichever channel. So Brave New World was a Peacock show, yeah, that was that. Um, mm. which was ended up being on Sky. But Doctor Death is a Peacock show, and that's going to be on Stars Play in in, mm. in the UK um, in a couple of weeks' time. In fact, we'll probably be reviewing it then. That the revival of Saved by the Bell was on and Punky Brewster. There's a lot of kind of like sitcom revivals they're, they're doing, they've done. But they haven't, as in yet, they haven't actually aired a whole lot of original programming yet, but I know they've got a lot of stuff that they've kind of commissioned. I think it is exciting because just to have a, this whole streaming service lumped into Sky as a whole new thing, I think it's pretty amazing considering, oh, the Queer as Folk reboot, that's going to be on, that's mm. going to be on, I'm just looking now, um, Battlestar Galactica reboot, James, it's going to be on. Yes. Um, so, WWE stuff is on Peacock in the US. There you go, yeah, yeah. And in fact, Joe Exotic, the Joe Exotic series. So yeah, it's a lot of exciting stuff. Because some of it, because I was thinking like, because we, because Sky, the affair is already on Sky. I rewatched it the other week and it's already on Sky. So will some things right. already exist on Sky, but now become centralised within Yeah, Peacock? I assume so. I assume mm. so, but it is confusing. It is weird mm. and confusing, yeah. I don't know. Because, and the other thing is, I've, I've always wondered why they didn't just do that with HBO, why they didn't just have HBO as a thing we could all watch rather than yeah. kind of 
acquire almost everything on HBO, but not everything because there's still yeah. a couple of things that they don't didn't show on HBO. But so it kind of makes sense to have all the Peacock stuff gathered in one place, I guess. Yeah, I, that must be the end game, I assume. I think it's an interesting model. It's an interesting new model. And of course, they, they also announced this week that Sky were changing their brand. Sky One is gone, is going from Sky. Mm. They're doing a thing called Sky Max, which is going to be where all of their like yeah premium content is gathered. And they're talking about how highlighting you know, the channel that is where all the best stuff that's on all the other channels on Sky gather. And Sky Comedy is going to be UK comedy and American comedy. So they're kind of rejigging the whole fucking thing. Yeah, because I I had a conversation with somebody the other day where we were trying to work out what the point of Sky One was anymore. I know. (laughs) Well, so have they, clearly, because they're they're getting rid of it. Exactly. Times had changed. Sky One used to be my favourite TV channel when I was a teenager because it had all the great shows on it. But those times have since passed. That's where I watched all my Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. Of course. I mean, they did have a lot of all of those, didn't they? Yeah, like nerdy sci-fi fantasy show, American Excellent shows. Excellent high-quality shows, Boyd, yes. No, no, they right. are. I, I'm sitting, yeah, they are, absolutely, yeah. They were, but they were all on, like, yeah, midweek Sky One. It was like the home... They should, Seinfeld was on Sky One for years at one point. Oh, was it? And they used to show, yeah, they used to show it constantly, yeah. It was great. And then it kind of moved to Comedy Central, I think it was. Yeah, it's all happening. What else have we got? We have a November release date for Amazon's Wheel of Time series. I'm pretty excited about that. I know you guys are not. There was a teaser trailer for Star Trek Prodigy. Now, that's the Nickelodeon slash Paramount Plus animated series, which is not the adult animation, Lower Decks, but the actual Kid Kids animated thing. Needless to say, I have absolutely no fucking time for this because Star Trek is not a laughing matter. Uh, (laughs) That said, it does have Kate Mulgrew reprising her role as Captain Catherine Janeway, uh, albeit in hologram form. So... If anything was going to get me into it, it would be that. But it's not, and I'm not, and no. Al Pacino, Terry. Al Pacino. Al Pacino what? Al Pacino. The offer has found its Al Pacino in a man who looks, let's be honest, nothing like Al Pacino. What is <laughs> who? who? I haven't Hang seen on. this. We were just oh. talking about Star Trek child animation. Oh, yeah, I moved on when you weren't listening. Sorry. Uh, Anthony Ippolito is going to be playing Al Pacino in The Offer. Uh, which is, of course, a Paramount Plus series on the making of The Godfather. Ooh, that's exciting. What's he been in, then? What's he... Nothing that I have seen or heard of, I'm pretty and he sure. Doesn't, and he doesn't look like Al Pacino, so... I mean, and he doesn't fuck? look like Al Pacino, so, you know, <laughs> make of that what you will. That's brilliant. I mean, one might say that, you know, it is, quote-unquote, acting, and therefore he can pretend yeah. to be Al Pacino and not actually looking like Al Pacino, but, you know... It helps if you look like the living person you're yeah. pretending to be. Helps Let's be honest. Yeah. Helps a bit, but you know, I, you know, I can, I've suspended my uh, my disbelief over more ridiculous things. So you know, I'll give it a go here as well. Well, I believe that is it for this week's news. So let's move on to this week's reviews. And first up this week. We have Cruel Summer, which is not, as you might imagine, the long-awaited Bananarama origin story, but rather, (laughs) rather, a show that aired in the US in April and concerns a teenage girl called Jeanette and takes place in the 90s, unfurling through three intertwining timelines around Jeanette's 15th, 16th and 17th birthdays. Now... I've got to be honest, I had no earthly idea what was happening for the first 15 minutes of this show. I was absolutely lost. But it did, or rather it does, all become clear as the show continues. Isn't that right, whichever one of you is talking about this? (laughs) Well, what order have you got them in? I mean, okay, fine. Terry! (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, 
<clears throat> I would like to call this the latest example of Jessica Beale has got really fucking brilliant, dark, deranged tastes, and I'd like to take her to the pub. <laughs> so I am all here for Cruel Summer. When Boyd texted us about this, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, it's going to be one of those dreadful American teen things. Um, and it is, in some respects, a dreadful American teen thing, but it is also very adult i think we should say it's got yeah. some really interesting thematic shit going down so it is produced by jessica bills i said and, and uh, michelle purple they have a production company together they most notably worked on the sinner and there are smishes and smidges of the sinner in this there really are tonally there are lots of similarities but it is a little bit more soapy i want to say the showrunner is tia napolitano who is from shondaland and if one if shondaland people know how to do one thing it is to soap that shit up (laughs) so this i mean this is dark and weird and pulpy and it's not subtle now, as you say, it takes it basically takes the one day format. So it's set over these three summers. It's the exact same day. I think June twenty first. It's set it's around days around that date, which yes, is her birthday. But, yeah. uh, but what what the difficulty of that does, and I think we have to give props and kudos to the execution because it's really fucking hard to tell three a story set across three years focusing on on this one day and also not just make it into a big expedition dump about what happened in the 364 days in between, not make it massively broad because you've got to cover so much off. I think they actually handled it really well with this massive storytelling restriction they've placed on themselves by the format. Um, so a little bit about the plot. So it's set in this small Texas town and what you discover is that a kind of blonde, very cliche, popular girl called Kate has gone missing. At the same time, there's this very geeky, I mean, bring out all the cliches. There's braces, there's bad glasses, there's acne, there's a perm. Um, it's it's a lot of you there is no subtlety in this bearing in mind the first year when everything is good and golden it's literally lit like heaven so you know the bit in like you know surreal shows where you go to heaven it goes beam and there's yellow beams everywhere it's like that and by the time you get to the darkness of the third year when everything's gone to shit it's basically black and white it is the entire thing is so dark So, and as you said, this girl is called Jeanette, who is in these three years manages to go from being kind of the geeky, awkward outsider in the middle one. She's somehow become really popular and stolen the boyfriend of the um, really popular girl from when she was a geek, if you're with me. And by the end one, she says, there's a voiceover and she says, she's the most despised person in America. So that's the basic of the story, which is she's gone somehow from being geeky to popular. The popular girl has gone missing and she's nicked her boyfriend. That's a very crass way to put it. I mean, when I say not subtle, I've described the geeky girl. Now, the mad bad girl who's in 1995 let me tell you how we know she's mad and bad because she has chopped all her hair off in an utterly deranged short bob that no girl of sane mind would ever (laughs) ever think was a good idea um and there's a line in this which is really telling because if you take all of those things on face value it seems like a pretty cliched way to depict teenage girls and various different types of teenage girls but 
I think Jessica Beale is doing something far more interesting. There is a line when this girl's dad is talking to a bartender who he's shagging. He's moaning about his daughter and she says she's not a sociopath, she's just a teenage girl. And a lot of dramas, whether it's films or TV, has explored that kind of sociopathy that can seem to be present, especially in young teenage girls on the brink of womanhood and on the brink of puberty. There's a real fascination with the danger of young teenage girls when they're going through that transition. And she kind of starts to dig into that in a really interesting way. And we should obviously credit the showrunner, but there's something in this about performance, about the performance young women are expected to put on, about how they're meant to seem likeable and sweet, about the assumptions we make about girls with bad haircuts who dress in all dark clothing and don't smile, and the girls who are good girls, and what does being a good girl mean, and what does being a popular girl mean... I only saw the first episode and a shit lot happens in the first episode, believe me. They cover an immense amount of ground. I think this is really well done. I love the format. I think it's I think it's really tricky, but I think they nailed it. I think it's really interesting and honestly, I am all here for it. And I I hope, having seen where they've started to go with this kind of dissemination of what it means to be a teenage girl, about what society demands from a teenage girl, about kind of, you know, what's expected of them, the, the image they're meant to portray into the world, all of these things, as well as this central mystery at the heart of it, which is where did this girl go and what happened to her and what role does this girl, Jeanette, play in all of it? I think it's fucking fascinating. I got to the end of the first episode and realised I had to come and talk to you people for an hour and a half. And I was gutted <laughs> because I wanted to watch the entire thing. I think it's really well handled. I think it's really fascinating. I can't wait to see what comes next. And I think even if it didn't do all those interesting things around young womanhood, about the threat and the fear society have of young teenage girls, I think it, it does the central mystery at the heart of it really brilliantly um, and and does something narratively that's really tricky and pulls it off with a plum. I think props due actually to Chiara Aurelia, who's the, the star in this. She actually does a very good job. Like you say, it's not subtle, but she does a very good job sort of making each of those kind of three incarnations discreet. I mean, it's a proper transformation as well between the three of this one. And it's not just, hey, we've got, we've got straight hair, perm hair, crazy bob hair, like... And, and obviously we have different filters on the cameras. We've got a little... But she does a really good job, I think, of playing that character differently. Uh, we don't see a lot of Olivia Holt in the first episode, but that's obviously Dagger from the Cloak and Dagger TV series, if any of you watch that. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. Um, but yeah, like, it's not, the only thing about this that really surprised me is, A, first of all, you exactly should say, it's really addictive. Like, I got to the end of this, I was thinking, well, I'm clearly going to watch all of these because this is batshit and I have to know what happens. But also, it doesn't fuck about. And it is that kind of, like, it, it does, I like... I would, I as with you, would love to sit down with Jessica Biel and find out what makes her tick. Because this show began with a trigger warning, saying that there is going to be... A, and the scene that it is specifically referring to, which I will not spoil, really shocked me, like properly shocked me, because it comes out of absolutely nowhere, and it's pretty full on. And I think, you know, as, it, this is a teen melodrama, but it is also a psychological thriller, and it's twisty turn, it's all these things... 
But I think it's the kind of show where, it, you know, like as with The Sinner, you know, it doesn't mess about. It can go some pretty bleak places as well. But I, yeah, 100%, I'm going to watch all of this without a doubt. Boydy? Yeah, it is It is really, really good. I've watched three episodes now and, and it is very addictive, as you say. And what, because not only, but the, the narrative, I, I mean, I've railed against... The, the flashback and flash forward thing going on, all of that. But when it's when it's it's, it's the same as Baptiste, right? Baptiste, the whole point of it, in a way, is to explore what when an incident happens, when a crime happens, how it affects people over the course of time. So to see a story played out forty months apart, as in the current series of Baptiste, for example, is it's just intrinsic to the whole idea of it. And at the same way, even more with this. So not only have you got three timelines, three years, 93, 94, 95, which, are, which if you, you, you kind of eventually work out, it sounds stupid to say it, but they're in, de- they're in ever less colourful visual imagery, if you like. So the 93 one, is, as, as Terry said, is really vivid and kind of mm. bright. It's a bit less bright. And then by 95, everything's saturated and grim and dark. Literally, <laughs> half of it's shot at night in the 1995 <laughs> scenes. It's quite clever but not only is it is it cutting between those it also cuts between the point of view of the affair style so episode one is is is, is mainly Janelle, as we said but episode two is mostly from kate's point of view the girl for whom she's taken her place somehow and we see more of that and you see much more of what's going on in her mind and in her family her crazy mum is spectacular by the way the casting in this is is brilliant every single character like the boyfriend who goes from the one to the other played by Froy Guitares brilliantly named Froy is fantastic Harley Quinn Smith who's Kevin Smith's daughter who plays the two buddies of both of them ends up and um, the other one is played by Nathaniel is played by Alias Barnes he's great and he, what happens in him in episode three is fascinating. I mean, I absolutely loved every minute of it. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's gripping. It is. There's very clever little moments, like for example, the dad, Jeanette's dad, played by Michael Landis, when he he comes in to see her on her birthday, and we see it in one moment being all positive and up about it and excited, and then literally the next they'll cut to him being really down about it because by this point she's become a national disgrace, and it explores that thing of someone becoming a national television character, a real person in a bit of a similar way to Gone Girl. It reminded me of, and it's really and as it goes on it's really exploring that and to watch her as it goes on in episodes two and three the character of Jeanette watch herself being portrayed as this disgusting evil person on tv is really fascinating I think it's got so many strands to it so the only thing that worried me after watching uh, episode three was there are seven more episodes there's 10 episodes of this thing that's a lot of storytelling but do you know what by the time I got to the end of episode three and certain other characters get their little subplots going I'm thinking actually there probably is 10 episodes in this thing and yes (laughs) I have to join in the Jessica Biel love she is now (laughs) the exec producing the best Stuff, some of the best stuff, and particularly focusing on this genre of like crimey, thrillery, but timey stuff. It's so interesting how connected it is to the other stuff she's produced before. It's brilliant. Yeah, I'm loving it. I can't wait to see the rest of it. Yes, me too. And that one, this is on Amazon over here in the UK, and it drops on Friday, August the 6th. Next up this week, we have Apple's Mr. Corman. Uh, and this is a comedy drama that stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the title character, a disgruntled teacher whose dreams of being a musician haven't exactly gone according to plan. He's lost his fiance. he's stuck teaching fifth grade and playing video games with his flatmate, all while being resentful and bitter about the whole situation. But boy, the question is, is it entertaining? 
Yes, that is the question. Um, I'm not sure it is, I have to say. I mean, I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen him particularly give a bad performance. I've seen him give some really good performances. And this is his baby. This is clearly, he's created mm. it. He stars in it. He's directing it. And it is, um, and I've seen him talk about how he wanted to reflect what life is like for public school teachers, as in public, in American meaning, you know, schools that aren't private, that are, you know, paid for by the state. And, and what that's like, the experience of being a teacher in this day and age and talking about, you know, basically men, the issues that men face of mental health, depression to some extent. In the second episode, is it the first or second? I can't remember. I watched, I watched two. He, there's an impotency kind of moment and, and what happens. That's with, episode one. That's episode one. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it is... It is I, I was like, there for it. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. You know, a big star, a big A-list star, takes time to create his own show, which is looking at stuff that I think is feels very contemporary and interesting and modern, but... I feel like most of it has done, been done better and more compellingly before elsewhere. Do you know what I thought of actually was the show that you, you two really didn't like, which was Dave, which I'm waiting very excitedly <laughs> for the third season coming, which is the little dicky, you know, um, Dave Burr playing himself, this rapper, white rapper. And he has all these issues or his, and some of his mates do of anxiety, you know, worries about their body issues. Um, but of course his character is a privileged white kind of star or at least he's becoming a star so it's got a slightly different tone but the difference is Dave was I know you two like it, but I, I at least it was like there was something fascinating about it instantly yeah. like drew you in uh, into its world and this world was like not something you've seen before and it was like beautiful I, I think brilliant you know really interestingly written interesting dialogue this feels like the idea was there but they didn't really find anyone to write it particularly well or to come up with dialogue that's particularly interesting I mean if you could put, I'm, I'm thinking of loads of students things like you know thinking of this way up you know how that show depicts a woman dealing with a lot of the issues that he's dealing with in this show but that feels like beautifully honed and where every scene is working to be funny or moving in mr corman the problem is it's kind of like a whole blah story it's like his story really what's happening to him is like meh like his life is just kind of like ticking along and he's unsatisfied. Like the first episode is like, what am we going to do to go out on a Friday night? That's the kind of story. And then he meets this woman. And I thought, I just didn't kind of believe in it, really. The, the, I didn't necessarily believe in the scenes with him and this woman when they're having sex and they stop. And I didn't believe the way she dealt with him and his issues. It didn't, and then she kind of, then, then one minute she's kind of completely irrational and difficult. And the next minute she's like completely nice and like kind of listening to him. It is not working for me in terms of authenticity. And I didn't, I don't think I'm going to carry on watching it. Yeah, like I kind of got the premise, which is we, we see a lot of this from a female point of view, issues of modern life and mental health and anxiety and awkwardness and flipping it so you see it from the man's point of view. So the, the girl in this you're talking about in the first episode is a bit of a dick and she arguably occupies the space men occupy in these things. Mm, yeah. And and it kind of is a little bit more convincing in in showing, I suppose, bits of awkwardness and anxiety. And it's really it's it's only concerned really with small moments of I wouldn't even use the word drama. It's like a mm. like series of vignettes. There's no real plot to speak of. Small character beats and there's that, there's odd moments I like. There's a really a moment of surrealism which I thought was interesting. But to your point, Boyd, it 
it feels like I've seen it all done and done better. So the showrunner, Bruce Eric Kaplan, was a writer on Seinfeld, was exec producer on Girls, and there were moments of this that reminded me of Girls, what made me think how brilliant Girls was and how much better it did this stuff. You know, Hannah was a public school teacher in that for a while. Some of the impotency stuff you see from the other perspective, the kind of just awkwardness around men and women, how we speak different languages, all of that. So it's excruciating, and I think it's meant to be excruciating, but I just found it hard to, I suppose, because there wasn't really an overarching plot to speak of, and I didn't find him that interesting as a character, I found it really hard to stick with it because I just wasn't that engaged or I just didn't care as much as I probably should. And I thought it was fine. I got to the end, I was like, oh, that was that yeah, was okay. It's yeah, fine, yeah. That's fine. That's okay. But he's such a he's such a he's a blah. What is he? He's like a blah character, isn't he? Because you're mm-hmm. right. I was yeah, girls. It's like to think how finely delineated those characters were, how well you knew them after like meeting them for the first time. He's like, what yeah. what and I think I think it might be deliberate that he's a kind of blah nothing y figure. Uh, but if he is if that is deliberate, it's not gonna be it's not gonna carry on make you carry on watching it because it just doesn't no. work. But as you said, it's in the writing, right? Because the thing about girls yeah. is from the very first episode I watched the first episode of Girls Again recently and Hannah is a dick and she's like it's irritating and narcissistic but that you know the opening scene of her in the restaurant with her parents and them telling her they're going to stop paying for her and she's actually going to have to get a fucking job like that it's so brilliantly written and everything Hannah says is in the service of you understanding that character how irritating she is where that kind of privilege comes from her perspective on the world and it's done so brilliantly that even in the first 30 minute episode you fundamentally understand who she is where she stands in the world you understand the dynamic with her parents you understand the dynamic with her mates you understand the world of which she's a part of and then the awkwardness and the anxiety and all of those little kind of scenes all build that bigger picture but this was almost the opposite it was a series of tiny little scenes but didn't add up to a totality of anything really or a deeper understanding of this character or even an understanding of the world there's a flatmate who and, and and you don't learn anything from that relationship mm. or from that setup or anything like that. And that felt like a fundamental failing. Really. Yeah, the most interesting relationship was him and his mum, played by Deborah Winger. I mean, mm. that's the most interesting. Hey, De- fantastic to see Deborah Winger. Their relationship is is odd and interesting. That was the one thing actually. Now thinking about it, that um, I thought was 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 the one interesting element of the whole thing, practically for me. It's also worth noting. He's a bellend. And the only reason that he seems... I mean, he's a bit of an unlikable twat. The only thing that kind of redeems him is just that he surrounds himself by people who, in some scenes, are bigger bellends. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so there's a slightly awkward sex scene, and he's a bellend in it, but because she's being actually worse, that's where the sympathy for him came from. And I was like, mm, so I'm still struggling to find an access point. But as you said, like, bellends are not necessarily deal breakers for a lot of shows, providing there are other good characters in there as well but as long as they're interesting and he isn't he is exactly as you say he's quite bland he's quite vanilla i didn't really get invested in his kind of shattered dream thing mm, yeah you think he should have been more of a bell end he's blah yeah he's a bland end 
It's too black, right? I mean, think of the teaching scenes, right? They're they're fine. It's almost like it could be like a. I mean, I kind of actually went just about believe those, but like he's not being either horrible or that. It's like what is he? He's, he's just nothing. He's not particularly a bellend. I don't. Well, think that he felt is. like persona, didn't it? It felt like he was sort of putting on a face while he was teaching. Yeah. Them. But when he's around his flatmates, when he's around other people, maybe it's not that he's so much a bellend. It's that he's a clearly very unhappy and he's quite bitter about his lot in life, and that comes out in a lot of his interactions. He's just a little bit fucked off all the time. Uh, which makes him quite abrasive. But yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't drawn to you know his missed potential. I wasn't particularly rooting for him to get back to his music uh, like Ross in Friends. I, I I didn't care. Didn't really like him. And uh, much as I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt generally, I, I yeah I don't think I'm going to press on with this. Sorry. But should you wish to, you can because <laughs> <laughs> it drops on Apple on August the sixth. Finally, this week, we have Series 2 of Dominic Savage's I Am, which we absolutely loved when it debuted in 2019 with just three episodes, I Am Nicola, I Am Kirsty, and I Am Hannah, uh, that would explore the lives of three very different women in episodes which were almost entirely improvised. We had Gemma Chan and Dominic Savage on the podcast, a nice interview with them to talk about that show, dig that out if you didn't listen to it. Uh, but the show returns to Channel 4 this week with I Am Victoria, which stars Saran Jones in the title role. Terry does the second series. Live up to the first. <laughs> what? There wasn't a joke. There was no pun there. But it was your face. It was full oh, cartridge like, face. Oh, hey. And he rose out of his seat to ask the question. <laughs> rose his butt cheeks off the seat. Oh, yeah. um, I feel we may have digressed into discussion of my butt cheeks when we really should be talking about I am series two. So yeah, let's talk about this uh, anthology story telling female-centered stories rather than James's arse. <laughs> so as you said, we loved this. The first time, and this is by Dominic Savage. And actually, the first episode, I watched the first two episodes. So this is a three-parter, as with the first season. The first episode is Saran Jones, I Am Victoria. The second episode is Letitia Wright, I Am Danielle. And the third episode is Leslie Manville, I Am Maria. I saw the first two episodes. And... This, for me, actually reminded me, especially the first episode with Saran Jones, really reminded me of Dominic Savage's film called The Escape. Now, this, I think this was 2016, 2017, and it's very similar to the I Am series, and it was starring Gemma Arterton, and it was essentially a film about a woman who felt incredibly trapped by her two kids and her family life, seemingly perfect family life with her husband, and her desire to escape. And it was shot in a lot of the same world, a lot of handheld, very small crew. All lot, Most of it took place within a, the domestic sphere, so within the house. You really got a sense of the kind of intimacy of it, but how trapped she was. Most of that was improvised. And what was amazing about the first series is that Dominic Savage managed to show a real breadth of female experience. So these are all women who are struggling or suffering or going through something in some way. But the stories could not be more different. So if you think about series one, you had Vicky McClure. Basically, it was a story of coercive control. Samantha Morton, which was about sex work. And then Gemma Chan, which was about being a, a kind of a 30-something middle-class woman trying to decide whether to have kids. 
And what I loved about the first season is that there are kind of a lot of prescribed narratives about the female experience and, you know, whose stories matters more than others. And what Dominic Savage kind of managed to communicate is that these are all valid stories, and that these are all valid experiences in lots of different ways, but they're also quite singular. So he he has this method of working with these actors on something that they kind of not his personal stem in, in that it literally happened to them. It might be something that happened to somebody else they know. It might be something that they're interested in. But he works with the actors on stories that they want to tell. So you'll see on the credits that it's it's basically credited to, created by Dominic Savage, and then it always says story by Dominic Savage and the actor, and they are very much involved in the process. And that process doesn't necessarily include a full word-for-word script. Most of it, as we've said, is improvised. Again, often handheld, small crew. You know, I think he, t- he told me that for one of them, they literally only had what it was a single camera. And that that technique is very much on display here. Now, this first one with Saran Jones... The broad brushstrokes of the plot are, you know, you've got this woman with seemingly a perfect life. She's got two kids. She's got a very nice, very handsome husband played by Ashley Walters. But she clearly has crippling anxiety. So you see her getting ready, exercising, you know, getting up at six o'clock, exercising, having a shower, skincare. It actually had very much echoes of American Psycho for me, the the whole routine that Christian Bale does um, at the beginning of American Psycho. And that the genius of I Am is always it shows, it tells the story, it shows not tells. So instead of you having a big dramatic scene where she ends up saying she's got anxiety, you see how she is buckled by anxiety. She tries to go about her daily, fairly mundane tasks. The way they ratchet up the tension in this episode, I mean, parts of it, it becomes quite unbearable to watch because as her anxiety mounts and her relationships kind of start to get put under this ridiculous pressure. And the the main dramatic piece in this entire episode is a fucking dinner party. It's all basically mounting to this dinner party. Which on paper just said, oh, who gives a fuck? It's such a middle class thing. Oh, what am I going to do with my dinner party? But it's handled so brilliantly. And I have to say, like, Saran Jones, who is an incredible actor, but as with a lot of women who star in soaps, is, you know, is often dismissed as an, as an actor. She is fucking brilliant in this. The way she walks the line between kind of what can seem like perfectionism becomes kind of hysteria almost in parts. The way she plays out, the the unravelling she's clearly going through internally while trying to hold together this perfect-looking exterior, um, I think is incredible. And then I watched the second one, I Am Danielle, which is with Letitia Wright um, and C.J. Beckford, an entirely different story. I, I really don't want to give too much away because the, the point of that entire story is is doesn't come until two-thirds of the way through and it is a shocker. But I'll just say it's about, you know, a young woman kind of developing a new relationship and, and discovering something which threatens that relationship. I found that episode completely devastating. Letitia Wright is, you know, an incredible actor, an incredible performer. A completely different story 
in many ways couldn't be further away, but that exact same technique that Dominic Savage does so well, which is trust with your actors, get them to tell a story that they're fascinated in, let them inhabit that character, let them tell their story through small movements as much as big movements, use naturalistic language, really invest in kind of an authentic, you know, we were just talking about a lack of authenticity, an authentic way of telling these stories in a small scale but massively impactful way. It's just brilliant. I haven't watched the third episode. I was trying to actually save the second episode to watch on a massive telly, not on my laptop, on a screening link, but I couldn't stop myself. I I think this is as good as the first season and I think this is such a brilliant way to tell stories and it's such an interesting way to get true real life impactful female-centered stories out there um yeah I thought it was it was magnificent both of them and unbearable in so many ways and uh, made me want to like pull my own skin off and throw it at somebody but you know that's sometimes what the best telly does yeah, it is. I mean, I, I can watch pretty much anything without, with you know, I can have a kind of enough of a buffer, if you like, between me and the thing to not be affected by it. But I found this one, having watched the last series, and I thought, well, I was like, I'm prepared, I'm prepared, you know, for it to, to, to take me to places which are really difficult and uncomfortable. But I have to say, the Saran Jones, this one, this first one, is really painful. It's re- I, just, I, didn't, I just could really see, I've seen people like this, you know, I've seen women who are a, a kind of like dealing with something that seems so on one, you know, they're living, living a perfect life. You know, that's the, she lives in this pristine white, everything's white in their home. And she's got lovely, two lovely daughters and he's a lovely guy that actually seems to be a lovely guy. And yet the tiniest little thing gets to her. She can't deal with the tiniest little thing. And that is such a kind of, that's such a, a, a brilliant observation. And how she then ends up in this kind of nightmarish situation, as you say, with this dinner party. It's so awkward and painful and difficult. I've, I've had one of the most difficult things to watch in a long, 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 long time, I have to say. But, you know, that's not, that is credit to, to, to everyone involved because it feels so real. It feels like you're watching something happening absolutely real. And that's this that technique he has, which is in every single one of these these films, of his camera right up against the star, the character. So you're practically, you're, it's so intimate, you'll practically feel like you're in the room with her, almost on her shoulder, as she's walking from room to room, trying to deal with her, as you said, with her anxiety. And these tiny little things that get to her is, is so clever and it works so well. I've also watched the second one similarly, and she's right, it's phenomenal. And that whole thing, yeah, that whole difficult, difficult subjects dealt with it's like it's like you can reduce each of each of these episodes, you say, to like a one line thing or an issue or a, or a kind of thing that people have to deal, women have to deal with, but that is almost doing them a disservice because actually they play out in such interesting, subtle, nuanced ways that it that you're learning stuff about what these people are going through and about what people are going through in real life as well. It is it's a real it's a real triumph this this whole series that's come up with. It really is. You're actually right. Like the the camera work, like that in your face thing. There's something about that that it it sort of breaks down the barrier separating you from the character. It makes you kind of. Like feel like you're inhabiting their skin. That first episode, the Sran Jones episode, I Am Victoria, just, as you say, is so hard to watch. Like, I felt the anxiety building. It's like a 45-minute episode, isn't it, roughly? And it's like, I felt it building up and building up. By the end of it, I was like, I need to have a lie down. I'm exhausted. She plays that role spectacularly. Especially, you know, when you consider 
how much of it is because it's all about scenarios and they talk about the situation they talk about the emotions they talk about the content of the scene and then the characters sort of feel their way through the actors i say the actors feel their way through the scene but the scene with her sister where they're talking about money to argue on screen obviously is it's not an easy thing to do convincingly to argue when you are improvising an argument on screen and to make it that naturalistic and that believable so that it resonates and it rings so true i mean that's a hell of a feat and you feel everything you feel the drip drip of all these little stresses each one kind of building and building and building until she just cannot cope with any more of it there is a moment at this where she rage bites a carton of alpro and i I just thought that was fucking inspired. <laughs> Absolutely inspired. It's uh, it's so good. You could just feel emotion simmering all the way through that episode. Uh, I, I, yeah, I thought it was an incredible, incredible episode of television. This show is so good. And I think we talked about this the last time, isn't it? This show is a show I never would have watched if we didn't do this podcast. It's not the kind of show that would ever go on my radar, not least of all because they're not in space. But <laughs> and there are no there are no witches in it. But, but it's not it's not my thing. And yet it's just and also like you would you're describing it like it's really hard to watch. It's really anxiety inducing. And I'd be like, nope, not for me. And yet and yet I watched this and all the way through I was like, this is just just watching people at the absolute top of their craft doing something so incredible. It doesn't matter whether it falls into your particular niche or genre. It's just like watch this and revel in it because it's just, yeah, it's it's fucking great. Absolutely love it to death. Uh, so I Am Series 2 comes to Boyd Channel 4 on... Uh, Thursday, Thursday 9 o'clock. Yeah, they're going to be on Thursdays this, this season, yeah. yeah. Yes, three episodes this time around as well. There are a few other things out this week, not least of all on Sky Witness, Queen Latifah's The Equalizer. Uh, her iteration of The Equalizer, kind of reboot of that classic show. Um, uh, and that drops on Witness on August the 3rd at 9pm. I haven't seen it. Boyd, have you seen it? No, to be honest. No. no. So we no. cannot tell you if The Equalizer is good, but feel free to watch it anyway. What else have we got, Boydie? Pose. Pose. Pose is finally back on Sunday. So on Sunday, it's airing Double Bill on BBC Two at 10 o'clock, but also the whole thing will be available as a box set mm. um, on the BBC iPlayer. And I have watched this. I have watched a few episodes of this, and it is, I think it's the strongest season because it goes to the mid-90s. The first episode is really, by turns, incredibly entertaining and moving. You've still got the spectre of AIDS is there, and they have go to funeral of, of, a, of a character who dies of AIDS. But then they're all obsessed with O.J. Simpson because the O.J. Simpson slow drive incident happens with the helicopter. Uh, him on the news and all of them watching so OJ Simpson playing out is how the first episode is constructed it's so interesting all of their different perspectives you know on is this a racial issue is it a sex you know is it an abuse issue has it really killed his the whole thing is really fascinating and well done so I thought that was genius having the OJ Simpson as the backdrop for the whole thing kind of raised the whole a show which I love anyway but for me it like really made it special so I, I love that yeah so yeah pose back on Sunday I must admit, I really want to mention there's a thing called Buffering, right, which I nearly forced you both to watch, which is a sitcom that starts on Thursday on ITV2 that is written, created by, and stars Ian Sterling. Do you know who Ian Sterling is, James? He is the narrator of Love Island, and he's got his own fucking sitcom. How am I... How was I ever going to know that? Uh, obviously, I was joking, you doofus. That's why I you idiot. <laughs> but, oh, my God, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything, but it is quite something to behold. His own sitcom, ITV2, Thursday. Well, yeah. that is very exciting, boys. <laughs> uh, what was our pick of the week, people? I am. I am Cruel Summer. 
I Am Cruel Summer, which was yeah. the fourth episode. Yeah, what, <laughs> what a double bill. What a double bill, yeah. Very good indeed. Okay, well, that is it then for another episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. If you enjoyed it, then do please leave us all the stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, then do please give us all the follows at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. Next week, Marvel's new animation What If arrives, so the chances of us seeing that before the show airs are very slim. Uh, so you may all be spared from uh, its animated charms. Uh, I am rather looking forward to Heels. We had a bit of a wrestling chat today. Heels on Stars Play, a little bit of wrestling drama. We might review that. Plus Ghosts returns to BBC One, so we might take a look at that one as well. Who knows? We like to live by the seat of our pants here at the Pilot TV Podcast. We're crazy like that. Pilot out. Pilot <laughs> out. 